Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 11. If someone, one of my elders would go and look on my desk or on the table in my office, my sermon should be there, hopefully, Lord willing. Otherwise, I'm going to have to pull it up on my phone and we'll see what happens. Technical difficulties this morning on me. Um, uh, John chapter 11, we are... Uh, entering back into so let me go ahead and dismiss the children to children's church three years old through kindergarten three years old to kindergarten if you would like for them to go they do not have to go of course but if you want for them to uh, you can send them there and uh, otherwise they are welcome to stay in here looking at john chapter 11 this morning and the final verses here of that chapter in verse 45 and onward and if you recall two weeks ago uh, before we uh, celebrated uh, the Lord's uh, uh, resurrection last Sunday, um, we were looking at Lazarus's resurrection. Uh, looks like uh, Pastor Mike has perhaps the right notes. He's probably going to ask me how much I want to pay for those. I just read the end. You did? Okay. <laughs> Thank you, bro. Good. Let's start again. No, I'm just kidding. So, uh, as uh, Providence would have it, we previous to Resurrection Sunday, had looked at Lazarus's resurrection, Jesus's raising of Lazarus. And it is the response to that at which we look this morning in the final verses of John chapter 11. I know that we've had you stand a lot uh, this morning. Can we have you stand just one more time as I do the New Testament scripture reading from our passage this morning? Uh, I'm going to read John chapter 11, verses 45 through 53. And uh, thank the Lord that my notes were on the table uh, back in my office. Would you uh, join me? I'm going to read aloud as you uh, follow along. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. This is in response to uh, the raising of Lazarus by Jesus. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who scattered are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. You may be seated. That is the word of God in the New Testament reading. Would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, indeed, your spirit who inspired these words in the original autographs can now illuminate our eyes and our hearts to an understanding. We pray for that, Lord. We pray that we would make application of these truths in our lives. Lord, as well, we pray that your Spirit might convict those who do not know you, who have never turned from their sin and trusted in Christ alone. Uh, Lord, we pray that they would be reconciled to you today and that the rest of us who are in your family, Lord, reconciled to you, uh, would recognize uh, your great grace and mercy in this passage this morning, that we would have our faith strengthened and, Lord, that we might love you and love our neighbor 
And especially, Lord, as we think about um, encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ here. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would humble me, get me out of the way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a world that is dominated by rationalism. Many would say that seeing is believing. In other words, there is, uh, if there is no empirical evidence, if something cannot be grounded in quote-unquote science, then it cannot be believed. Something like the scientific method has been engaged in order to verify theories and hypotheses. This is, of course, uh, not necessarily wrong. We, we need uh, rational thought. We, we need uh, input from science and through the scientific method, method. But this is not the case all the time. And those who insist that it must be the case all the time, that we must look, through, look at everything through that lens, are indeed hypocrites, maybe unwittingly, because they actually do not live like this most of the time. I mean, there's several ways you could think through that. But we might deduce from Paul's language in Romans 1 that seeing is partially believing. There is enough evidence so that mankind knows that God exists, but it is just enough information to condemn him, uh, not to save him. There needs to be special revelation, supernatural revelation, in order to see God as he reveals himself to be in his word. And that he has done. He has given us a special supernatural revelation. You heard me say it in my prayer, the, the Spirit um, inspired men. It says in, in Peter, he, Peter says that he carried men along by the Spirit as they wrote things down. We have the Word of God. This is how God has revealed himself specially, specifically to us. But what if the thing you're seeing is undeniable and you still refuse to believe? In other words, uh, you see something happen and you cannot deny it. What then? And what if the thing you're seeing threatens your very way of life? This is indeed what we observe in the response of the religious leaders to Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus. Seeing is not always believing. Because we have clear evidence in this passage that what was seen could not be denied, and yet there was unbelief. So this morning, uh, the main point is this. It's written for you on the back of your worship folder there. It should have been emailed to you if you're watching from home. Though Christ's miracles are undeniable, the religious leaders fear that what power and place they might lose if they let Jesus continue on. Though Christ's miracles are undeniable, the religious leaders fear what power and place they might lose if they let Jesus continue on. And I think that there is a spiritual parallel to this in our day and in, in, in any day, really, previous to today. And that is the spiritual question of what might I lose if I turn my life over to Christ? What kingdom that I am building might be lost if I turn my life over to Christ. And, and really, even for believers, what little kingdoms, what idolatry is God consistently destroying in our hearts and lives as we must believe and follow Him, even as we have been born again miraculously. 
This morning I want us to see three observations surrounding the plot to arrest and kill Jesus. Three observations surrounding the plot to arrest and kill Jesus. The real reason, number one, for the Pharisees' concern is their relationship with Rome. The real reason for their concern is their relationship with Rome. Remember, some believed and others ran off to tell the Pharisees. It's that turn we now take in the narrative. And um, some have suggested that possibly those who run to tell the Pharisees aren't necessarily being nefarious in doing that, but uh, perhaps they're actually going to say, you need to understand who this person is. Uh, You have denied this, but now one of the greatest miracles ever performed, the the, the penultimate, the, the only second to his own resurrection, Jesus has just, of course they don't know of his resurrection yet, but Jesus has just raised someone from the dead. This has not been seen, at least to our understanding, since very early in the Old Testament. So perhaps they're they're, they're running to them and saying, see, he is who he said he is. Or perhaps they have other more nefarious reasons to do that. But um, this becomes big trouble for uh, the religious leaders. Look at verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? What are we to do. This is what's known as the Sanhedrin, this council. It's a council made up of uh, religious leaders, both liberal and um, uh, conservative, if you will, in, in these days. And they are really given control over Israel in, in many ways. There's always a, a governor over Israel, as Rome is over all of Israel. There's a, a local governor. But then, sort of, the religious leaders are given a, a governing sort of. Um, uh, place above the people as well. So this is who's called together, this council. And, and the Sanhedrin is the most powerful entity uh, under Roman rule over Israel, other than that governor that's over them. But, but, but they would be the ones simply in charge of Israel. Uh, the first thing we notice is that they simply cannot deny his Miracles. Look at what it says. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Uh, they even call them signs. Uh, a sign is meant to, to point to something. They are not denying the, the supernatural. In fact, um, the, the uh, Pharisees, the conservatives of, of the group of the Sanhedrin, would have uh, totally believed in in, in the supernatural. Perhaps even the Sadducees would have, though some of the supernatural, the, the Sadducees, uh, dismissed and, and denied, but but they cannot deny what Jesus has done. Uh, publicly, Jesus has uh, made a, a blind man see. He has made the lame walk. He has healed leprous people, outcasts uh, who have a skin disease that cannot be uh, allowed near anyone. Jesus goes and compassionately touches them, though, though, though none would want to touch them, and he heals them. And now Jesus has raised a man who had been in the grave for four days because, as Martha said, by surely, now, surely by now he stinketh, right? He's, he's got the odor of death. And yet he has been raised. What are we to do? They are not deny, denying the supernatural. They do, at a point in time, deny the power of that supernatural and say, he does the works of 
the power, by the power of demons, these works by the power of demons, to which Jesus says, um, why would demons cast out demons? Um, why would uh, there be a split in the powers? It cannot be denied that these are supernatural signs. They're just denying where that power comes from. Their theology will not allow them to see Jesus as the eternal Son of God, though there are Old Testament markers where they should be able to put these things together. Notice their plight in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, this is so so ironic. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. I mean, they understand what's happening here. They've seen the, the droves of people that are following him as he teaches. Even as we saw in John chapter 6, those who left because he was saying hard things, there still were, were lots of people who followed him and said, if, if he keeps up with this, people are going to believe in him. And we can't have that. Why? What is their plight? Their plight is this. If they believe in him, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They cannot deny the supernatural signs. Therefore, they have to stop him. Notice the arrogance. If we let him go on like this. In other words, we must figure out a way to stop this. Or what? (laughs) Or people will continue to believe in him. Why? Because he does signs we cannot explain as either from God or as they have falsely accused him as from Satan. And what's going to happen if they don't stop him? They say the Romans will come and take their place and nation. What is this place and nation that they are so concerned about? Though in general this idea of place would likely indicate the promised land, the boundaries of Israel that God had promised to them, it more pointedly refers mainly to the idea of the temple, Because as Kostenberger says, quote, the temple is the most concrete and climactic referent since it's located in Jerusalem, the capital city of the promised land, and the place where God himself dwells, end quote. Just a footnote here. What's so ironic about this is 40 years after Jesus is raised from the dead, they lose it all anyway in the siege of AD 70. And guess what? They have zero control over the Temple Mount today. Nation nation likely had to do with Israel's allowance by way of the Sanhedrin to rule over that province. In other words, um, the, the Sanhedrin wants to keep religious and political control. That's exactly what this is. They have been given a they have been given a a place of priority. This isn't the same as the place that they're concerned about losing they're concerned about losing the temple for, for religious re- reasons, but they're very concerned about losing their power over the people of Israel. In short, honestly, they recognize who Jesus is. They know that he's the Messiah. And what happens when the Messiah comes? He becomes king. They say, we have to do something to stop him. Another, another way we might say this is they wanted their own kingdom. And even if they wanted God's kingdom, they did not want it from Jesus. We pause for a moment and ask this. Kind of raise this in the beginning. 
How many of us are vying for our own kingdoms? How many of us are too contented with the freedoms we have in the U.S. that as those are threatened, we care more about those than the lives of others around us? Are we not guilty of the idol of comfort? What if something happens to our religious freedoms? Regardless of the way we vote or use our current liberties to seek to sway our politicians. Let me ask this. What happens to the kingdom of God? Absolutely nothing. Is the kingdom of God not more important than this? Is the call to love God and neighbor and its its foundation, what we are called to do in proclaiming the gospel and the fruit of that and loving our neighbor, not more important than that? Now, don't misunderstand me. I am grateful for the freedoms we have and for those who have fought for them. However, as the landscape of morality and culture changes around us, the idea of the kinds of freedoms change. And we have been called together as a body to proclaim the good news, no matter if our so-called place and nation are taken away from us. We are first and foremost citizens of another kingdom, dear ones. And we must live as such, even if, in some senses, what we claim to be ours right now is taken away. It is not for us to decide that. It is for God to decide that. He has given us means by which we can do that by His grace in this current country. Many people don't have those freedoms. I'm thankful for them. Please do not hear me saying that. But we must be on the the ready for what if. It's interesting to consider that the Messiah who will bring about the true place and nation and His new covenant body is in their midst. A truth that the high priest unwittingly prophesies concerning as we see in our next point. Look at number two. Human rationale is superintended by the Trinitarian plan. They are so concerned about their place and nation and, the, and, 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 and not the kingdom of God truly. And, and in their midst is the Messiah who can bring about the true kingdom in his new covenant body. And the high priest comes up with a plan, and in it he doesn't realize he's doing God's very ordained bidding. So we now see the high priest who is aided in calling this shindig together speak up, and this is such a captivating part of John's gospel. This is the turning point in John's gospel. Uh, To me, as I think about my love for the New Testament, this is, I think, through the New Testament is the turning point in all the New Testament. I think, I think John just captures it so well here. What does Caiaphas say? But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You know nothing at all. Rather than your wishy-washy, what shall we do? In verse 47, Caiaphas boisterously and coarsely bursts out with this insult. You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He is saying that what they need to do is put Jesus to death. He is not 
him hawing about with mealy-mouthed weaklings, he is going to state it straightforwardly. In order to contain this thing, we must put him to death. There have already been instances where John has shown us the reality of death threats towards Jesus when those who are listening to him have sought to stone him. Here is the climax of that frustration. And notice... Notice now it has less to do with blasphemy when he calls himself equal with the Father. Now we understand their true motives. I mean, ultimately, that's what they want to peg him for and, and put him on the cross for is blasphemy. But what are they fearful of? They don't want to lose their power and their whether it's religious or political power. Caiaphas said it here at the climax of this frustration, it is worth it to kill him in order that we do not lose what we have. But what Caiaphas does not realize he is saying, John gives us insight into, into God's providential superintention here. Even in his rebellious state as high priest, he is actually prophesying that Jesus will die for the nation, but not only what we would call the remnant of Israel, but also those from all over the world. I love this. I, I think this is, the, this is the peak of Genesis chapter 50, what man intends for evil, God intends for good. And I think that that idea has to be ringing in John's head here as he explains, you know, many years down the road after this has happened, exactly what... Uh, is happening when Caiaphas says this. Look at it again. I just It blows my mind. Caiaphas stands up with the most evil of intentions, with the most snarky of responses, and says, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. You bunch of weaklings, stop uh, skirting around the issue. We need to kill him. And look at what John says. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, I mean, in the midst of being rebellious against God, God uses his priestly office to prophesy something. Isn't that amazing? Being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Guess what? That's you and me. That's you and me. Jesus himself has stated this in the parable of the sheep. Look back at John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16. Just a left-hand turn there real briefly. John chapter 10. In verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd... I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, so far, they've got in mind the sheep of Israel. But listen to what he says next. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Caiaphas doesn't know it. But he is actually affirming what Jesus has already said in John chapter 10. 
Here's the theological point that Peter makes concerning this in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4. Turn over to Acts 2. Acts chapter 2. Keep your finger in John 11. So we know that Peter here in Acts chapter 2 is preaching what we call the sermon at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. Look at verses 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, notice what it says, a man attested to you by God with what? Mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. What is, what is Peter bringing up here? He's bringing up the very same thing that the, the Sanhedrin is bringing up. He has done signs. We cannot deny it. We cannot deny these signs. You yourselves know this, Peter says. Verse 23, this Jesus, notice what it says, Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now look over at Acts chapter 4. Verses 27 and 28, as... They are released from, from persecution. They're, they're giving praise to God for the gospel. They've just been persecuted for, for proclaiming the gospel. Listen to what they say in verse 27. Uh, well, look back up in, at verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, this is from Psalm 2, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. What are they saying? They're saying in Psalm 2 that David is prophesying of the Messiah who would come. And then what happens? They rage against him. Verse 27. <coughs> they say, now here's the reality of this. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel... Notice what it says, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. Back over to John chapter 11. This is what is happening here and what John is emphasizing. The best laid plans of men are still subordinate to God's ordaining of events. Though mankind is the secondary and evil cause, as we see in Acts chapter 2, it is for the glory of God and the saving of many that God ordains it. I don't want to oversimplify this truth this morning. But whatever you're facing, it is likely more difficult than what you can explain and perhaps more hurtful than what you've ever experienced. And it's okay to call it wickedness. It is perhaps perpetrated at the hands of wicked people, but it is not unknown to God. And it does not mean that God is uh, pleased with the actions of sinful men, but that He superintends this for His glory and for our good. This is what's happening here in John 11. They are plotting to kill Jesus. They cannot deny his miracles. They cannot deny ultimately that he is Messiah. They don't want to lose what they have, and so they're seeking to kill him. But Peter says in Acts 2 and Acts 4, this is what God intended. This is the gospel. What is a better good than the rescue of men from eternal condemnation? At the hands of wicked men that God superintends over that to save many, including, as I look out across this sanctuary, you, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ. 
This is the gospel that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, died a death that only sinners deserve. He rose again and is coming again. Why? So that he might establish his kingdom. So the question again is, are you more concerned about your kingdom? More concerned about what this political thing means or what this mandate or that mandate means? I didn't say not concerned at all about those things, but more concerned. What about your life in Christ? What about your call by God to love Him and to love your neighbor? The ability to do these things is only from God through Christ in the Spirit. That is, you are saved and able to do these things. This is your call. Have you ever considered that only those who are in Christ are empowered to do this? When, when God says to love God and love neighbor, that only those who are in Christ are empowered by Christ's righteousness through the Spirit to do those things? What in the world are we doing with our lives and our time if not pursuing His kingdom? No matter what evil men may do against you, God is superintending it for your good and for His glory. This is not to minimize the pain and suffering, but to give reason for it. No matter what agenda you have for your kingdom, God is superintending what wrong pursuits you are after in order to bring about His kingdom. Therefore, why would you fight against Him? Why would I fight against Him? We are, to, we are called to come under that and to joyfully obey in worship. And I'm not necessarily putting us on the same plane as those who planned and plotted Jesus' death. But He already has died. He already has secured your salvation. He already has redeemed you. He already has given you His righteousness. He has given you His Spirit. We are to live for Him, not for ourselves. In obedience, His joy and worship indeed. When we obey Him, it may feel like drudgery because we're fighting against the freedom that is in obedience because we think our way is better or our thing that we think is going to bring us joy is better. But really in what he calls us to do is the most joy. And it is lasting joy. And it is worship to him because he is worthy. In our text, we see these wicked men are plotting and planning for their kingdom. And it does set the events of Jesus' trial and death into motion. And that's what we see thirdly here. The plan is set into action. The plan is set into action. Caiaphas' words rally the troops, and they are now dead set on making good on these plans. Look at verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. <clears throat> Whatever had been periphery in their thoughts previously, it's now central in their minds. This is their one goal and focus. They start off with, what are we to do? And they've been wrestling with that time and time again. Caiaphas says it's time. And the answer is, he needs to die. In fact, interestingly, in the next chapter, we'll see that they want to get rid of Lazarus too. Why? You can't have a a, a dead guy walking around who was brought to life and then put to death the guy who did it. Right? 
they want to kill, they want to get rid of the evidence. So they're now laser focused on putting Jesus to death. Jesus' response at this point is to no longer openly walk among them. Look at verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. By the way, in this, we are reminded that Jesus is the one who gives away his life. It is not his hour. And he has been protected through various means, through his own uh, way through the crowds or through miraculous ways or through the Spirit. But right now, the way to be in control of his own death and for his own hour is to go to Ephraim. And he goes there with his disciples. When the time is right, he would arrive for what must take place. But for now, he's not walking openly. This is seen in what is mentioned next in their question and resolve in verses 56 and 57. This idea that he will come uh, along when... Uh, the time is right, uh, starting in verse 55, I'm sorry. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come at all, come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he, he should let them know so they might arrest him. What do they know about Jesus? I mean, here's something else that they can't deny. They can't only deny his signs, but he's a perfect Jew. He has never missed a feast ever in his life. Because that's what you do as an obedient Jewish person. And he's the perfectly obedient Jew. What do they they know is going to happen? He's going to show up here. And we've got our... Spies on the lookout for him. They expect to see him there. And the plan is, when he shows up, we're going to arrest him. We think once again of the concurrence here of mankind's wicked plans and the plan of God. It is not that these men are not responsible for the death of Jesus, but this is ultimately the Trinitarian ordained plan for the rescue, perhaps even of some of those who plot to kill Jesus. Have you ever thought of that? Even those who are plotting and planning right now, who put him on the cross, certainly there are some who are in that crowd when Peter tells them that they are responsible for placing Jesus on the cross. Acts chapter 2, after Peter relays that they are the ones who have done this. Listen to what it says. Now when they heard this, when they heard that they were the ones responsible for putting Jesus on the cross, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They know. They know they're responsible. They know that they have put the Lord of glory on the cross. And they say, what shall we do? And Peter tells them to repent and believe the gospel and be baptized to show forth that truth. And we know that 3,000 were added to the church. Think of the irony of that. What was the plan 
of mankind. Get rid of him so that we can keep our place and nation. What is God's plan? (laughs) I'm going to start something new and there's going to be 3,000 at the beginning. And what happens later on in the book of Acts? The the religious leaders and, and, and their cronies are pulling their hair out. How can it be that these... Twelve people are turning the world on its head. That's what they say. What is God's plan? To rescue men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation through the life, death, and resurrection of the incarnated eternal Son. Cannot undo God's plan. Cannot thwart it. If you're a Christian and you're seeking your own kingdom... Probably best not to fight against it. Let's get in the flow of what God is doing. What about you? Are you caught to the heart this morning? As one who has not trusted Christ, let me say, it was our sin that held him there upon that tree. He died for sinners like you and me. He rose victorious over sin and death so that we might not ultimately taste either. My plea to you this morning is to repent, to turn from your sins and trust in Christ alone. Because it was your sin, my sin, that placed him upon that tree. If you are his, where is your kingdom focus? Is it in a USA of yesteryear? Or is it upon his kingdom that never changes? He has called us, regardless of what we face in this life, whether we lose a place of power or prestige in the current living situation, He has called us to be about His kingdom work until He comes to take us to Himself. And then all will know that He is King. You can proclaim it now and people can go, you know the truth, and one day they too will know the truth. Are we living like we know the truth? Are we living like this kingdom is a part of what we are currently? That we're to be about His work until He comes to get us. Are we living like that, encouraging our brothers and sisters in this local assembly to live like that? Let me just say this, if you're struggling today to know what it means to respond to the good news of Jesus, please come and see Pastor Steve at the end of our service. He's going to lead us in a hymn here in just a, a minute, and he'll, he'll stick around at the end to talk, so you can talk with him. If you're struggling to seek first Christ's kingdom, again, Pastor Steve will be here to pray with you. And if there is a need for you to get more counsel in either of those situations, he can provide you with ways to come and meet with us later this week. Would you pray with me? Lord, how guilty am I of wanting things that promote me? Lord, rather than giving things up um, for the joy of knowing you. And uh, Lord, I do not mean that we cannot enjoy the good gifts that you have given us. We must first and foremost worship the good giver. And uh, Lord, help us never to, or when we do, to repent of when we decide that our agenda is greater than your agenda. Uh, Lord, um, certainly you have given us good and great gifts. We do have freedoms that we are so thankful for. 
But help us to be ever vigilant to maintain, first and foremost, a kingdom perspective, even when things may be taken away from us. Our fight is not with flesh and blood, but against powers that are spiritual. And we are to tear down those strongholds, to give the truth above all else of who you are and what you have done. Help us in that task, Lord, I pray. I pray for those who do not know you, that they would come to know you. And I pray that those of us who are finding strength in our faith this morning, that we would come alongside of our brothers and sisters and strengthen them as well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.